Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phantopological, the podcast that explores the breadth of human fandom. My name is Nick G, and today we're going to be addressing all of the planets in the Solar Federation as we talk about fans of Rush. And here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T. Modern day warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. When you got nothing, you just got to belt it out, everybody. And Nick Z. Oh, I'm fresh from, uh, from the fountain of Lemneth, and boy, are my clockwork angels tired. I'm sure that's a reference that will make no additional sense to me as we continue through today's podcast. As a person who gets it, I assure you it's not very funny. I'm sure for this episode, Z picked the references first and then went from there. Well, I'm sure there'll be no shortage of references as we're talking about a band that is over 40 years old. Have I got that right? Yeah. Uh, we're talking about a band and a fandom that is over 40 years old, which I'm sure there are, there are many hard rock and rock bands of that era, but it's just it just boggles the mind to me. With the exact same lineup? Yeah. Uh, not many. That is pretty insane. But let's move on uh, to first impressions. And I'm going to start with T. I'm going to keep it short and sweet because being completely honest, I don't have much of a first impression of Rush because I haven't really thought of, of Rush. Let, let me put it a little bit differently. The extent that I think about Rush is when I think of that one episode of Futurama where they play Tom Sawyer while the space invaders are coming down. Or alternatively, when I was playing Rock Band once and we played The Trees and I was singing and I thought to myself, wow, what is going on with these lyrics? That's pretty much the extent. <laughs> Expanding on that, Getty Lee, really high vocals, Z, big fan of, of Rush. I feel like... Your experience with the trees is like the core of like the experience of Rush. Because you're listening to the song at the same time as you're reading the lyrics, so you have to pay attention to them. So you're like, what is going on? Um, my, uh, my Rush story begins with Z, so Z, go ahead. My Rush story goes so far back, I don't even, even really remember how far back. My earliest memories of encountering the band are, were just somehow stumbling across them when the internet was just a new thing. And then downloading their songs one by one through very, very early music sharing websites and things like LimeWire and Kazaa, you know, talking a little bit more to uh, the various topics for today. Um, I had no idea they had a convention all about the band. And I had no idea that there was this sense that it was a very male, almost exclusively male fandom. I always had the idea that just like any other band, you know, Everybody liked them, and it wasn't uh, wasn't a big deal, you know, what your gender was or, or anything like that. I remember um, when I was at the University of Guelph uh, talking with somebody on the, the staff of the magazine, The Carousel, and uh, she we took, got talking about Rush, and she told me about this time when she went to a Rush concert and wound up getting high with her math teacher. So, I mean, I just had this impression that Rush is for everybody. I mean, I've got lots of questions about all of that, <laughs> but uh, I want to make sh- I want to make sure that that G's story has a an ending, unless it's just Z opening up and then things never closing off. Now, I, as an end to that, I f- I believe Rush is like sold like the fourth most albums ever, or something like that. Oh wow! Or has the fourth most platinum albums ever, something like that. They're surprisingly high, but I I remember being introduced to Rush by Z. In high school, just like Caress of Steel and stuff, 
<laughs> stuff that he knew would get me hooked or the ones that he liked. At the time, it was probably the ones that I liked because I was downloading them song by song. I didn't always have full albums. So at the time, I don't think I don't think I uh, my caress of steel didn't include the the much more on the nose song. I think I'm going bald. So that was a, a later thing I discovered. I remember the Fountain of Lamneth and I remember yes. the Necromancer for sure. Yes. For sure. Yeah. Um, but I was into I was like into like Dream Theater at the time. So that like kind of. Uh, dovetailed pretty nicely mm-hmm. and then i remember i think i listened to 2112 and the first album i bought of theirs was like the retrospective two album uh which was the 80s hits uh-huh. the first the first song was was the big money i remember that um and i was you know i was really into prog at the time and i was sort of getting out of metal and though rush seems to get cited as metal-ish i wouldn't really say they're metal they're not as they're not hard for hard sake, you know, but they're very proggy, very complicated, but they seem to have a, a degree of accessibility that none of the other prog artists did. Like even, even aside from, uh, from like their, their, I hesitate to say poppiest, poppier stuff, but more mainstream stuff in the eighties. And I was like, they were never like my favorite band, but I was always like, yeah, man, I always enjoy, I always enjoy throwing on some rush. But yeah, I've 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 known stuff about Rush and listened to Rush off and on since high school. So now I have to think about how long ago that was. Maybe I'll I'll let you save some face because the question that comes to mind for me and and something that I know you want to talk about Z was what is it that makes Rush fans and these are your words so resolutely loyal to the band because as I'm digging in. As I dug into the research, there wasn't anything that stuck out to me in particular. I mean, I learned a lot about Rush as a band. I didn't know that they were high school dropouts. I think Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee were. I want to say Neil Peart. If he was, he was still the nerd, the book guy in the group. I want to say he like went through college or university for mythology or something like that. He's the guy writing the lyrics and, and they reflect at least somebody who just reads a lot. Got it. And and I mean, that was one thing that I picked up on. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Like, I huge respect for nerds because I am one of them. <laughs> but after doing a bunch of research, one observation I take away is that Rush fans are huge nerds. One of the articles that will be in the show notes, there was a quote in it that's like, these same qualities won them the attention of a non-traditional fan base. People who loved Dungeons and Dragons, the songs were sometimes very long. The song topics were very overwrought they would have songs that quoted hemingway songs with science fiction theme an album that drew ideas from kyle jung and when i read that quote i was like well that is exactly why z is a fan of rush yeah that pretty much sums it up they've always had a strong narrative to a lot of their songs and and i think that that gets gets z right in the heart but z can probably say himself yeah and and that would be helpful because you know, I learned lots of random facts, lots of things about fans, lots of bizarre things that we'll talk about later, but but not anything about why people are so loyal. I think that is a big part of it, how almost every song tells a story. It's not just like, oh, Rush aren't the kind of band that do songs like baby, 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 oh, baby, 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 oh, you know? And like so many other people who became Rush fans in the 70s, 80s, 90s later, I think just listening to them in a high school, they just seemed like such a 
unique band in that, you know, they weren't singing these, these pop topic songs. And there is this sense that they were smart, they were intelligent, and that they didn't like just spell things out for the people listening to the songs. I think it was from one of the documentaries, either Beyond the Lighted Stage or um, Time Stands Still. But Neil Peart, during one of the little 30-second interview bits where they just like go jump back and forth between band members or whatever, um, said something like, they always figured that the people who were listening to them were at least as smart as they were. So there's this sense, and even though this is something you know you don't really pick up on until you hear them say that, there's this sense that they respected their audience. They respected like their audience and believed, maybe assumed, that whatever they were putting down, the audience would be picking up. There's also the whole, for whatever, I, this is something I only really discovered when I was digging into the research, the whole idea that Russia, even though fans are fiercely loyal to them, they're also maybe the most hated band of all time. I think that's 90% Getty, honestly. That is something that I, I picked up on. There was lots uh, yeah. of hate of Rush, but it, it was mostly people saying, oh, I really can't stand this guy's really high-pitched voice. But that was literally mm-hmm. the only criticism I could get. Like, I, <laughs> There might have been some general criticism of prog rock, which I can neither vouch for nor yep. have disdain for. But the biggest criticism was like, Getty Lee, and, and by extension, I hate Rush. I don't know. Couldn't get it. Couldn't figure it out. I hate cake for the same reason. For the singer. I mean, the singer is the first person you hear. They're the one they're, they're the one using those words, and those words are going to rattle around in your head, and if they're being, uh, quote, helium squawked at you, maybe it's not going to come across as pleasant to everybody. A lot of the people, um, in terms of just individual responses, as far as I could tell, on things like Quora and Reddit, were saying stuff like, you know, it kind of boils down to you either like it or you don't. But somewhat more interestingly somewhat more helpfully uh some people were saying things like uh it's the kind of band it's the kind of music that provokes a strong reaction whether whether that is i hate this or i really love this um and then they're also this sort of band whose music whose lyrics the whole everything the whole sum of all the parts speaks to people on such a visceral level that it's something that is even though it's not necessarily being made for you, the listener, you, the individual listener, it's very easy to listen to the music and have this sense that I, I guess, especially if you're in high school, uh, either it's like speaking to your personal experience or it's just tickling some part of the brain that normally doesn't get tickled by music. And it, it, for whatever reason, hits people in such a visceral way that it's, something that they almost come to identify with as part of themselves and you get you know be cool or be cast out (laughs) from subdivisions not not complex lyrics not really deep lyrics but like people can hear it and be like oh yeah yeah i get it i get it immediately that's and that's there you go rush is rush is sympathizing with you the underdog rush is the underdog so many people hate rush Therefore, you're supporting the underdog by supporting Rush, and the underdog must be supported. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, that's like a, a rationalization of all of it, but I think that kind of happens automatically for people who listen to Rush and, and like it. All of that just sort of falls into place, and they're like, yeah, this is my music. This, this scrappy Canadian band that would just go back to their dressing room after concerts or their hotel room and read books. 
and not, you know, have any sort of scandalous sex, drugs, rock and roll stuff go on. So for a band that everybody hated and was the underdog, how did it get so much airtime? That is the thing. I think and this is something that some of the articles that I was reading um, suggested. Part of the reason why people hated it was because it had so much airtime. And I mean, in terms of getting that airtime in the States, I don't really know. In Canada, it would be a very easy way to get that Canadian content since Canadian radio stations are required to play a certain percentage of Canadian content. I want to say at least 30, but I feel like it's got to be higher. Um, and, you know, you've got this rock band, Rush. Everybody seems to know them. They've got some some songs that are maybe a little bit too long. Oh, no Fountain of Lamneth or 2112, but uh, you can play Tom Sawyer or Spirit of Radio. Nice little five-minute songs. Getting into the States side of things, it's possible that Donna Helper, the uh, music director at the radio station WMMS over in Cleveland, her picking the song Working Man, which itself is kind of on the long side. I think it's about seven and a half minutes for the station, both because it's a long song and DJs need to use the bathroom sometimes. So a long song is a good way to do that. And also because she said in an interview that from the first time she heard it, like the first time she dropped the needle on the on the record, she just knew that it would resonate with the radio station's blue collar audience. And so it's possible that that little that little in was enough to sort of spread the word among the, the listeners, but also among DJs that there's this band that's producing music. It'll resonate with uh, with like this audience that maybe maybe is getting tired of the boss, Bruce Springsteen and other, you know, American rock and rollers of the day. Needs want something new, something fresh, but also is good for those uh, those bathroom songs. I believe she referred to it in the same interview as Canadian Zeppelin, <laughs> which pretty much that time they were. Yes, yeah, yeah, and I feel like I feel like their their um, connection to the radio wasn't consistent. Like I don't think we were getting a lot of play from like uh, Cross of Steel or Twenty One Twelve or Hemispheres, no, or anything like that, and. The one, the one thing I find funny is Tom Sawyer shouldn't work as a popular song. Like it, it's, it's got like five different sections. Yeah. And like none of them really sound like yeah. each other. And they're all weird times and weird chords. But it works somehow. I think it's, it's a really nice microcosm of what, like, what a lot of Rush, Rush's longer stuff and uh, Prague in general can do and often does do. But it's it's presented in such, uh, I guess, an easily digestible way. And plus, uh, Getty Lee's not singing so much as speaking. I I had thought for the life of me that that was his singing voice. And then I listened to 2112 today for the first time ever and realized that his singing voice is somehow even higher and sounds even less real. I I literally cannot believe that the voice that I was hearing was not altered or pitch shifted or something like that. <laughs> it does have a dreamlike quality to it, doesn't it? it it's got a <laughs> special something. I'm not saying it was um, bad. I just like, you, you yeah. will tell me that that was him singing and I will say what? And I feel like 
Whereas Led Zeppelin has a song like Ramble On, where he's like, I got to I got to leave you, woman. I'm moving on. Mm-hmm. And then something about Gollum in the second verse. And and people listen to that when they're like, I need more Gollum. Yeah. That's where Rush comes in. <laughs> uh, yes. Who absolutely uh, much like Genesis, much like Genesis when they were starting out. Uh, I remember Mike Rutherford talking about like, oh, we used to, you know, because we were like students at the time. And we we would draw like like from poetry and 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 Greek myth and uh, you know legends instead of quote boy girl type things, and no one did that more and more often than Rush. In their own weird way, they were very Canadian, even for, like even way way back in the beginning. And I think maybe that helped them get that airtime too, especially in the states as well as up here, because they were not just a Canadian band; they were a Canadian band. Which is a little bit difficult to really condense into words. All right. All right. Well, you, you know what? I did not even know until we started this podcast that there is such a thing called Rushcon. Because he was like, hey, we're going to do some research. I want, I want to know what's the deal with Rushcon. And so I started digging. And I was like, no, there's, there's no way that Rushcon is the only convention for a band that's gone on for 17 years. I'm like, all right, kiss. You know, if there's anybody who's going to have a have a con, sell a bunch of stuff, for lack of a better word, sell out, <laughs> Kiss has got to have a convention. We have the Kiss Cruise. Oh, well, I forgot about that. But again, probably probably not running for 17 years. I was like, you know what? Maybe Japanese performers. Japan's got a big performing scene. Uh, Hatsune Miku. Yeah, they've they've got a bunch of conventions technically, but not 17 years. So I was, I'm left wondering, like, why why does Rush have a con and why has it been running for 17 years? Because a concert was not enough. I, I get that. At this point in history, at today, where we are now, we have a Rush that has released, as you said, a lot of different albums that have done very well. And you also have some of those albums, I believe, being turned into other works, like into literary works. Clockwork Angel's last one definitely has like accompanying graphic novels. And I think just novels as well okay so when you when you reach that point i can kind of understand oh yeah okay a convention makes some sense you're celebrating more than just the music not that the music isn't enough but like you've got enough to draw in maybe a slightly wider group of people but 15 years ago does that make sense i i couldn't find very much about rush god so th- this just kind of blew my mind when when i found out at all that it was a thing yeah, it was crazy to to uh, discover that it, like you say, it was a thing. I think what's helped it continue on for as long as it has, and which also kind of throws its future into question, is that as far as I know and as far as I understand, each one is sort of paired up with a, one of their one of their tour dates, usually in Toronto, but not always. I think there is at least one in L.A. So having it paired up with the concert makes it a little bit easier. So it's like, okay, there's the concert, I don't know, Saturday night. On Friday night, why not get all the fans together ahead of time and I don't know, have some tribute bands play and maybe have some sort of charity auction of some of the band's memorabilia and just meet other people who like Rush. Because otherwise, in your day-to-day life, uh, the impression that I got from a lot of what I was reading from from some fans and from some of the articles was that if you're a fan of Rush in your day-to-day life, you 
probably not really running across too many other fans of Rush. Much like, at least in the 90s and early aughts, with anime conventions, RushCon would be a place where you could go and enjoy your share, enjoy your interest as a shared interest with other people, rather than just the thing that you were into. It's just to, it's just to get it out, right? It's yeah. to, it's like yeah. the catharsis of being like, Rush, I love the Fountain <laughs> of Lamnath and I got to talk about it. Man, I found this, I found this clip on YouTube and it was just this little seven, seven-ish minute thing from uh, Global News, a little sort of uh, perspective piece on RushCon. And uh, one of the people they were talking to said, you know, oh, people will bring in their own homemade t-shirts and bracelets and that kind of thing. And rounding it out was this really brief little interview with, uh, with a fan who came in with like a bunch of necklaces that were homemade, but also like one was basically a necklace of like a shard of Neil Peart's drumstick. And another one was like this little sort of guitar thing, like little ceramic guitar with a little window in it. And in the window was like, I think a, a guitar string or some, something like that, or maybe a, a hair from whoa, Getty's whoa. guitar and or head. Yeah, there's, there's a spectrum of, of the dedication to the fandom. I just found it really interesting that people would go to that extent that it's like shards of remnants of the concerts would be treated like these medieval relics. That's part of the whole thing. <laughs> That's the Rush vibe, right? Yes. To mythologize, you know, Rush mm-hmm. the way they mythologize the world around them. Um, so it breaks my heart a little bit that on the RushCon website it says January 23rd, 2017, on a short break, hope we'll see you down the road. And then in 2018, Alex Life's announced that Rush is basically done. they are not going to tour or release any more albums i you know i'm not running rush con i personally think that it like you could still keep the con going oh yeah but it's just like there's there's no anchor event that was something that i was wondering about too because you always have this question with the convention of you know when when is its time up for many pieces of media that have very broad appeal they have a very long life they might not be very specific. They might not, they might change a lot from year to year, but you know, they can last forever. Rushcon, I feel like has a shelf life and I was wondering how, how tight it is <laughs> to rush. And it sounds like the answer might be very, cause I think, I think also there's a very large gap in its history. There's like a five or a six, like a five or eight year gap between like one of the different cons. And I think that was also when rush went on hiatus. Yeah, I think it's very, very, very closely linked to uh, to them touring, and and uh, the the website makes a note of raising money for charity as well. A lot of that is as 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 you mentioned, auctioning off memorabilia and things like that. So it was just like <laughs> doing stuff in the name of Rush. <laughs> I believe it was also a uh, a not for profit con by fans for fans kind of thing. I mean, it's it's really surprising, especially because Rush when it started out is so like libertarian and and as some describe proto-fascist <gasps> yeah <laughs> but i have not had the opportunity to dig too much into that but just the contrast between then and now i'm just like blown away that that the band let alone the con has continued to go on so long Let's briefly talk about the ayn rand connection perhaps <laughs> 
Yeah. So as as mentioned, Neil Peart was an avid reader, and what he read often would um, seep into the songs that he wrote as he was the lyric writer. And he wrote 2112, largely based on Ayn Rand's anthem. Now, I don't know if he was like, man, I, I endorse this entire ideology and think everyone should hear it via sci-fi opera or, or was just like, this is a neat idea. Let me put it in a song. And the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, but because it's it, the liner notes of 2112 acknowledge Ayn Rand. And that means that people were like, whoa, there's some kind of objectivist libertarian free will for all band. Um, like the, the band has always had a very like work centric ethos. They're all first generation. I don't know if Neil Peart is, but Gaylee and Alex Lyson are. Yeah. And they had their, you know, they, they saw their parents working and they wanted to, you know, have the same work ethic. They, they have the song on 2112, something for nothing. You don't get something for nothing. So there's, there's the, the idea of like earning something is probably very valuable to them. And that, and that does feed into like libertarianism, but not like all the way. But I think that, that, that is enough to make people go like, man, this commie pinko band or whatever people said about them <laughs> in the press at the time. Which is fine. I think it would actually be the opposite, but that's not important to the discussion yes. here. <laughs> you're, you're right. But in the documentary, there was definitely a headline that literally said that. Ah. Oh, which is, it's just strange because Ayn Rand <laughs> is like the opposite of that. She's very anti-communist. Yes. When I read that, though, it conjured up in my mind because some of the comments that I read when trying to find out, you know, why are Rush fans so loyal? Part of what came up was, uh, and there were some really great quotes and they blew my mind in that they didn't make any sense to me. Uh, here's one of them. Women famously hate Rush, but most men have hated them just a little less fervently. And there was another one that's, uh, they're also upfront about their lack of appeal to any female audience. That almost had me do a spit take. And when I saw the the libertarian connection, I'm like, oh, maybe maybe this is the bit. Maybe the, that, that ties it together. I don't know enough about the ideology or anything like that to really tie things together. But that people made those comments about um, women not liking Rush. I didn't I didn't understand that. And from the research that I did, there's a very healthy audience of women who enjoy Rush. Doing the research, the first few results that came up were the following. No women like Rush. No women like Rush except for me. And of course, lots of women like Rush. What are you talking about? <laughs> and should point out the Rushcon staff is all women. So that's at least five. But um, yeah, watching the documentary and watching their final tours, I'd say if not 50-50, yeah. 45-55 men and women in the crowd. Uh, so if it was once true, I don't think it is true now. I feel like there might have been a sense that it was true in the 70s when they were sort of uh, leaning very hard in the, the fantasy Tolkien-esque kind of thing. Because at the time, I think there was just, just this general sense that fantasy and sci-fi were not like exclusively for men, but that I guess for whatever reason nerds tended to be guys i'd say if you look at a few uh 
fantasy novel covers from the 70s, you might think that they're exclusively for men. Uh, yeah. <laughs> might, might have something to do with, you know, male publishers and then hiring men. And you know what? Let's let's sidestep that for a second. When I read people's rebuttals of there being no women in Rush or, or not endorsements, but when people were saying, yeah, of course, there's no women in Rush. It all came across to me as this whole modern rick and morty like to be fair you have to have a very high iq to understand rush <laughs> like i could not divorce that idea from my mind when i was reading some of these people saying yeah women don't like rush <laughs> it just didn't make any sense i saw a lot of that too so even putting aside the fantasy part and t I'll peek behind the curtain here tsc have a note here prog rock and women what's going on a lot of it was about Rush, but I'm wondering if it's actually about prog rock because it seems like a skewing in that direction, but prog rock is definitely not my scene, so I don't know. Yeah. So every prog rock documentary I've seen mentions that barely any women came. I think some of that has to do with like prog rock is an emphasis on virtuosic playing a lot of the time, which is ultimately like a lot of like the same as comic books, like power fantasy. Mm. like like a demonstration of power or in this case skill right yeah uh, a different type of muscle if you will got it so and it's not that women don't enjoy power fantasies it's that there is a huge emphasis on male empowerment fantasies and they're like cool maybe we could do something different yeah like, like if you were to grossly simplify the the hypothesis yeah um i don't know <laughs> i don't know how to pick this apart because <laughs> it's like stuff like genesis it was just like doing you know the same kind of prog rock forever and then they did follow you follow me and instantly they had t- like 10 times as many women at their concerts <laughs> you know i don't know what to glean from that <laughs> it may have been true then but it doesn't seem true now and that's Probably because we fortunately live in an age where people, I want to say people care a lot less what people enjoy. And I don't mean that people don't care. I do mean that people are more accepting of the kinds of things that people listen to. And as an example, there were some great quotes from women who enjoy Rush. And they talk about how Rush is really good at telling stories, not just crazy, sweeping dystopian stories, stories about being the weird kid in class. Uh, but the music also suits those stories. It's still Neil Peart writing lyrics all the way down, not just the fantasy stuff. <laughs> yep. And he's yep. got he's got some some good relatable stuff in there as well. <laughs> emotion transmitted, emotion received, for example. Very what? Very relatable. <laughs> That's some meme <laughs> shit right there. So at the time, Rush was like an active band and also had a bunch of associations with it. And, um, you know, Rush, Rush is, even though they've, they've only officially disbanded in 2018, they've been like, they haven't been like really in the spotlight for probably 20 years or so now. So like, and, and as you said, we're focused less on other people's interests. So it's like, hey, you like that thing. I like this thing. So what? We're, we're a lot chiller about that. So there's no sort of stigma or meaning or special context to liking Rush now. Uh, it's just like another band. It's like another thing on Spotify, another thing <laughs> on your on your Discover playlist. Yeah, they they may have been underdogs, but now they're just music. And and that being said, I think 
uh, vis-a-vis my famous last words last week. I'm because I was like, did they just get all their fans at twenty one twelve and Tom Sawyer, and those fans just aged up, or are they acquiring new fans? And I think they are. Um, there was a lot of focus in uh, Time Stand Still about f- about fans, specifically attending RushCon, who who have passed it on to their kids mm-hmm. and have their kids there and have their kids there having a great time. So there's a, there's like a generational aspect, but like the audience was like quite a diverse makeup of people, both you know age and gender and everything. It was not a bunch of old fogies. <laughs> uh, there were quite a few old fogies, but it was not all old fogies. A lot of people saying this is my 111th rush show. What? Some people just taking a sabbatical and uh, rushes their fish, rushes their Grateful Dead. They just follow them around, I guess. I think Rush probably has shorter shows than them, weirdly. <laughs> uh, coming back to my famous last words, which dovetail a little bit. I, I had asked how much of Rush fandom is about Rush versus prog rock. And I found overwhelmingly that it was about Rush. There didn't seem to be any particular angle to the prog rock side of things. Maybe fans ended up listening to prog rock, but people seemed to listen to Rush because they wanted to listen to Rush. They wanted to hear Geddy Lee. They wanted to hear Neil Peart. They wanted to hear the other guy. (laughs) Oh, Matt, that is perfect. That is perfect that you're not calling out Alex Lifeson. And and again, in one of those documentaries, I remember there's this scene. They're filming. Uh, Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee sitting down to a meal and like the waiter or somebody comes up and says, you're, you're Getty Lee. Can you sign this? And then, they, you know, he's signing it and Getty's just kind of like, you want this guy's, this guy's signature too? And they're like, oh no, that's okay. I do actually believe that it was like, whoa, whoa, you're Getty Lee. Can I get your autograph? And then Alex Lifeson goes, that's Getty Lee. Yes. Oh, it was great. He's very, um. Very nondescript, whereas Getty has sort of yeah. a, a signature look. Yes. Yes. And Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson are the ones who are like friends since high school. Mm-hmm. And they like, they're pretty jokey. They seem to always make time for fans. Neil Peart famously does not meet fans. He cannot pretend that a stranger is a long-awaited friend. The whole thing like weirds him out, kind of. I remember him saying, saying is like, The Who was like my favorite band in high school, but I would never like try to go meet him. He enjoys a lot of solitude, I think. Yeah. Hence, hence cycling from uh, show to show. Yeah. Do you want to round off your famous last words there? Absolutely. I think it's very appropriate that my famous last words go last here uh, because I asked, so basically, what's the deal with Clockwork Angels? Do people like it as much as 2112 or is 2112 the undisputed best album? And it seems like my rush is no longer the rush. Oh, no. (laughs) I know, it's terrible. But seriously, looking around on things like Reddit and Quora, it seems like people maybe not necessarily think Clockwork Angels is the best album they've ever done. There there are a lot of comments like, uh, if this is their last album, it's a pretty damn fine album. Uh, This might not be better than 2112, but it's easily second or third in terms of like the best albums they've ever put out. All sorts of stuff like that. The few dissenting voices that I heard amidst the the din of the, of the crowd were things like, well, you know, it seems kind of disjointed and this, that, and the other, and maybe it's just kind of an album designed to create tie-in media so that, you know, Neil Peart will have other revenue streams once the band is finished and this, that, and the other. 
or things like it just uh the production's not not good enough to sort of like bring everything out it's kind of muddy the songs like this is my own personal beef with it the songs just don't have the same variety as the earlier concept albums like even looking at hemispheres looking at fountain of, Le- of lamneth looking at 2112 they are all quote a single song broken into sections but those sections are incredibly distinct and as part of telling the story with the lyrics as as the uh, fr- friend or person in Annie Zaleski's article about women liking Rush points out those lyrical sections are really, really well matched with the music that plays with them. But with Clockwork Angels, it just, to me, feels like so much classic rock just over and over again. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I am, uh, I am the underdog amongst underdogs with, uh, regards to Clockwork Orange. Oh, yes. Or Clockwork Orange, Clockwork Angels. It's hard to compare it to an album that came out before your lifetime because the only impressions you have of it are received impressions. You were, you can remember where you were when you first heard 2112 or whatever, but it came out like 10 years before you were born. So it comes with, oh man, this is such a great album. Whereas Clockwork Angels, I think, was changed quite a bit because Neil Peart basically wanted to write a book and Getty's not singing the way he used to because he's like 60 years old or whatever. Yep. And I think that kind of changed it a lot for people. Yes. It also is you're consuming it in a different context, right? Like you're consuming yeah. it in the context yeah. of the music that came out. So something that was novel at the time just sounds like stuff that you've already heard because it's come out much earlier. I'm sure that if I was in high school right now and listening to Clockwork Angels, you know, at that point in my life, I'd probably love it as much as I love 2112, Fountain of Lemoneth, Hemispheres, like Cygnus, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, the concept... The, the I guess the fan theory that it's an album sort of a meta album about their career where, where each song represents a period or each song represents even a song is kind of interesting and intriguing but eh or maybe it's just the, ste- the steampunk thing it's a neat setting but check out Thomas Dolby for more on that well after that strong endorsement of clockwork orange and by that i mean clockwork angels um i think i might have some idea what your conclusion of uh, rush fandom is but you know what i'll leave that up to you and i'll uh, let you take some time to think about it because we're gonna start with g what's your conclusion about rush fandom you know they're kind of at crossroads here because rush is done um i doesn't mean you can't stop liking the music doesn't mean you can't stop gathering doesn't mean you can't stop analyzing lyrics and albums and for for hidden meanings and stuff like that there's a ton of rush albums i haven't heard yet there's uh they have lots of concert films that i haven't seen there's lots of rush content two documentaries i've seen both of those but uh yeah i you know i think i think they're they identify themselves as being passionate and that's like their defining characteristic like to be like we want to have the band with the most passionate fans, and it looks like they may they may have done that. But uh, yeah, I'll probably still keep listening to Rush in the same uh, same amount that I usually do. A couple albums a year, maybe. Maybe I'll, I'll uh, revisit Clockwork Angels and maybe check out the supplemental material. It seems like a logical conclusion to Neil Per reading books for all of his life on the road that he would want to write one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like Rush. 
I don't think a lot for me has changed. I am interested in maybe checking out some of the graphic novels just to see what that's mm-hmm. like. But honestly, it seems like such a mixed bag and it, maybe it's just music fandom. Maybe I'm just not a big... F- I enjoy music. I enjoy singing. I enjoy listening to music. But maybe I can't find the empathy to really understand super fans of music. And I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with not knowing more about Rush fandom. Nothing against them. I, I, I was. I do intentionally use was a huge Rush fan before. Kind of drifted away a little bit, you know. Uh, explored some other prog rock avenues. Explored some other musical avenues as well. Sun Ra, Jawabble, uh, rap, you know, getting out there. <laughs> artist, artist rap. <laughs> or, I, I mean, I mean, uh, MF Doom for a, a specific reference. There you go. But I think musically, more so than any of the other bands that I listened to during the teenage years, which are, you know, scientifically supposed to be the most formative years for your taste of music. Oh, the stuff you're going to listen to for the rest of your life. Rush will kind of always be like my home. It's the sort of thing that I would, I think I would find myself coming back to from time to time to sort of check in on, sort of enjoy music that even though I've heard it a bunch, even though I've heard it hundreds of times, still always gets me. Like I will never, never forget listening to Rush and playing Aiden Chronicles or maybe not even playing Aiden Chronicles and listening to the band, but just like Aiden Chronicles on the Nintendo 64 was, was I guess at the time, like almost like the sort of D and D sessions. I imagine uh, people listening to Rush in the seventies had while listening to Rush or having Rush in the back of their minds. And I feel like it gave me sort of a similar experience, you know, you, you hit the Necromancer's Tower in Aiden Chronicles, and I know I'm talking about a game maybe five people who who are listening have played or even heard of, but, like, you hit that Necromancer's Tower, it's just, it is entirely just reminiscent of the atmosphere of the song, The, ne- the Necromancer. My point is, I, I will still enjoy Rush. I still enjoy Rush. And I, you know, in preparation for this podcast, I was listening to Clockwork Angels quite a bit, a few songs do stick out. I'll probably keep listening to that one here and there and trying to dig a little bit deeper, read the lyrics, <laughs> and then listen to it again. All that stuff. Like she said, there's a lot of Rush content out there. And even if it's the content that I've already heard once or watched once, I'll happily listen to it and watch it again. So if you've heard this show and decide that you want more, you can always go over to Phantopological.com where all our previous episodes are there different fandom covered each week? And I'm sure there's one that you're going to be familiar with that we've covered. Uh, you can also check us out in the podcast of your choice. Please read, leave a rating and review if you do and subscribe to get a brand new episode every Friday. Uh, you have, if you have feedback for us on the show or a topic you'd like to hear us cover on the show, uh, let us know over at the next cast on Facebook or on Twitter. And now everyone's favorite part of the show. The famous last words. That's right. It's everybody's favorite part of the show, Famous Last Words. And in an upcoming episode, we're going to be talking about a topic that I know literally nothing about, mycology. I want to know if if the fact that like half of mushrooms are like poisonous is a barrier to entry to mycology.
that's the thing that's always like I picked this topic and that's why I picked it because it's like I love that people love mushrooms first of all (laughs) and like so many of them are so dangerously poisonous but people still still are interested in finding them I want to know I want to know if if the danger aspect is a deterrent or an attraction for me I don't want to know about the danger I want to know what does standing look like in mycology fandom what is a extremely passionate mycologists look like do they have a book of pressings is that it is there something even cooler that i don't know about the answer is probably yes and you will find out next episode i will find out next episode they have incredible pizza it's just covered in many different kinds of mushrooms (sighs) that sounds fantastic okay this this dips a little bit into first impressions but i won't go too far down that that road the only thing i know about mycologists comes from a book I found while on the West Coast. And the only thing I I remember about this book, it's like a mushroom hunting book, is that it's a guy in a suit in the woods with like a giant chanterelle or or chicken of the woods or something in in one arm and a trumpet in the other. And he's kind of crouched down and he's like, "Ha, ha, 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 mushrooms and trumpets. My question is, in, t- in this day and age, 2018, scratch that, 2019, is mycology more or less exclusively something run by hipsters? This is also something I'm curious about. That'll do it for this episode of Phanthropological, and if you can crack the hidden backwards message located inside this episode, you'll find us in about a week's time in your feed. So until next time, we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Rush. In the day with a friendly voice, companion unobtrusive. So elusive and the magic music makes your morning moon. This is the just <laughs> unaccompanied rush vocals. Yeah, I'm sure that's what everybody wants. Special bonus episode.